Hello, and welcome to our second episode of the year with online education across the Atlantic. And uh, great to be joined by uh, Morgan and Neil. And um, Morgan, basically, you're, I don't know if this, how much this goes back to your new, new Year's resolution, but you, you wanted to be more positive this year. And the news is not making that easy at this point, is it? It most definitely is not. I think it's a it's a plot against me on the part of big tech and higher ed and the government. And basically, they're all aligned in unison to make my my life difficult to understand and grim. Um, it has absolutely nothing to do with my inner personality and, and tendency to see the glass half full of toxic waste dump effluent. Um, <laughs> my nickname for, for those of you who don't know is Bubbles, Bubbles Morgan. <laughs> Bubbles. Okay. That's very cheery. And uh, we're glad to share our pain with you across the Atlantic, Neil. I mean, you were just saying it's hard to read anything at this point. Look, I, we could have a really good sort of tennis style rally around pain and negative news stories, I think, across the Atlantic, because, you know, in the same vein over here, just thinking about, um, you know, our kind of conversation today and thinking about, is there is there anything that's positive out there? Anything of kind of interest? And then I was kind of confronted by a, a news story um, that kind of broke today in the UK around um, franchise provision. So universities franchising their provision to other providers and um, instances of fraud being taking place in there. So that, that you know, was the one thing that beyond the kind of obvious came, came to me today, which was similarly <laughs> in a negative vein. Is there anything that you guys can offer that can cheer me up uh, that we're in the same situation as you, so you're not alone. That's probably the main thing. Okay, uh, okay. <laughs> well, here was another unknown one that came up, is Eastern Gateway Community College. We've been getting a lot of interest ever since Morgan wrote her post about uh, and the update on online education at community colleges, which is good. I think it's helping getting get a discussion around their unique needs. And, you know, so there's some positive that that area is really growing. But in the U.S., Eastern Gateway Community College went with sort of an OPM model, but in a unique way. And then they were doing essentially free community college for union workers, which on the surface, that sounds good. But the federal government jumped in and they were saying, listen, what you're effectively doing is subsidizing your online program with uh, federal financial aid for other parts of your school. So you're essentially repurposing federal grants to go this way. They ended up uh, pausing all enrollment and then they shut, they're shutting it down. And this was a large program. I think it was over 30,000 students. Um, I was up there in terms of one of the largest. Yeah, it had quickly become one of the largest. And so that's all bad enough by itself, but I hadn't really been following the overall Eastern Gateway Community College. But a new story came out recently about all kinds of other fraud from the institutional leadership. Um, and, you know, where it's almost like the way they were had the financial aid problems, well, that turned out to be one of the least of their problems at the school. And it was, you know, a twist. And I I think pretty good chance some of these people might be going to jail. But that's uh, 
no, that's not a very good thing to share with you, Neil, to cheer you up unless it's, you know, you like other people <laughs> having misery as well. Yeah. Yeah. Schadenfreude, maybe. Um, yeah. Oh, well, that's, that's interesting. We've got the fraud, fraud theme as well um, across the Atlantic. So again, yeah. another shed. <laughs> well, let's, let's try this one. Uh, the news is coming out and it's not confirmed yet that uh, uh, Upgrad, which is an you know, tech provider in India, is acquiring Udacity for uh, $80 million. So if that turns out to be accurate... I mean, to me, that's interesting on several levels. Uh, let's start with the positive, as much positive as we can. Uh, in the Indian ed tech market, it's been poisoned by Baiju's and their financial crisis and the fraud. That's that's real fraud, if you ask me. Some good financial fraud there, and it was looking like it was poisoning the whole Indian ed tech ecosystem. Well, one positive thing: this is showing the strength from Upgrad that not everything from Indian ed tech is going to be associated with Baiju's and investors completely losing confidence. So there is an Indian ed tech provider that's showing some real strength and potentially buying Udacity. The other thing that's interesting to me is $80 million. Goodness, they started the same time with the same fan fanfare as Coursera. Coursera, of course, is now a publicly traded company market valuation over $3 billion. So what a what a contrast between those two outcomes between two companies. But uh, that was interesting news. And like I said, there's some positive aspects to it. Yeah, definitely. Um, though I, I'm going to try and extract the, the, um, the grim news out of that news as well. I just last week wrote in the blog post about how the, the, the Baiju's news was depressing the Indian ed tech sector. So this deal happened entirely to prove me wrong. It was oh. all about just... <laughs> okay. Well, we'll take little... it though. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. On an interesting note, I just noticed come come across my inbox two newish OPM deals, one for all campus and one for um, one for BISC. The BISC one in particular was for, for certificate programs at, uh, I think it was Vanderbilt and, and University of British Columbia. So that's sort of interesting. Also uh, proving proving us all wrong in terms of the, the OPM spaces in, in the US, at least, as being a little somnolent, if not dead. Yeah, I wouldn't say we're wrong. I'd say that's the exception that proves the rule is probably a better interpretation of it. But then another one that uh, we just started sharing between ourselves, and by the time this uh, this podcast gets released, we might actually know the answer on it. But you know, a lot of rumors going on around news coming out of Two U and edX today could be as simple as yet another round of layoffs happening. Um, and I, you know, they're having to deal with their financial crisis, but it could be some further clarity on how they're going to try to deal with their debt problem and give us a taste of what the direction is going to be. So I don't know that any of us have any more details, but certainly want to call out that that seems to be a newsworthy item. Yeah, it's very inconsiderate of them to have not announced anything prior to our podcast recording. <laughs> we must have must have words with them. But uh, yeah, I mean, something I kind of made mention of of. You know the the UK universities that have recently or are potentially due to enter into partnerships with them. I mean, there's it's just it's interesting to think about what any news may, how any news, sorry, might impact 
impact on them and you know just knowing the history of partnerships um coming to an end for whatever reason you know they 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 do have kind of big ripple effects on um providers online education ambitions which you know we'll maybe talk about later is kind of a you know important other way of diversifying income at the moment so you know that's going to be interesting to see what what gets announced and what comes out a little bit later i think yeah well let's uh here's well, we could treat it as news if we want to, or just follow up. Uh, but Neil, you put out your uh, UK L- uh, VLE market update, which we I found that we time we're now timing our uh, our market analysis report. We do it after yours, so we can fully leverage or plagiarize what you do in the UK <laughs> and add it to our report. That was a gr- uh, great report, but it might be worth if you can just sort of summarize. And I, I re- highly recommend read, uh, listeners go read the report. It had some great insights in there. Yeah, I'll be putting yours through Turnitin, Phil. Um, to, okay. To check. <laughs> No, but joking aside, yeah, it's something that I've kind of been doing annually just to kind of see the market movements in the UK. And, you know, uh, as as you both know, you know, this kind of market moves slowly, but, you know, really a kind of continuation of, of, of the trends of previous years in terms of those big four players. So Canvas having a really, really good year and winning a number of different new new clients and increasing their market share. Brightspace also doing doing so, and Blackboard really kind of sliding. You know, it's kind of been. I was having a conversation with someone recently, and we were kind of struggling to remember when the kind of two more traditional incumbents, Blackboard and Moodle, had actually won a significant new client in the UK, and that we were really struggling on that front. So, you know, overall market movements are kind of following similar years and uh correct me if i'm wrong but i feel like in in north america the market is a little bit more equitable in terms of market share than it is in the uk in the uk moodle have a big share followed by blackboard canvas and then brightspace um but it, i i think you know we're we're probably moving to a scenario in which um the share is a bit more equitable with kind of brightspace and canvas growing theirs and the other two sort of declining um, but yeah, that that was kind of interesting. I mean, I think another interesting thing that I didn't really talk a, a lot about, but was, I guess, maybe because of recent instance, instances, the kind of maybe greater sense of risk of going with someone new. I mean, it's always been difficult for a new product to enter into this market, but there's been instances in which providers were using um, Aula, which, is, which was a a kind of a, a platform on the market for a while and it was bought out by Coventry University and then there was another platform called Eduflow a smaller platform which was bought by Multiverse I think it was um, and those platforms were used by providers who um, you know I think wanted to take that punt on something that was you know a little bit different um, and ultimately you know they ended up having to change some of them have ended up having to change VLEs as a consequence. And, you know, I just, I've always kind of reflected each year on the market and, uh, you know, the fact that it's so locked in with those four players. And then when you do see a new player emerging, I mean, it's kind of in a way nice to see, but, you know, it's also like a, a little bit of a shame really that those new players have kind of, you know, sort of exited the market. And I think anyone reflecting on the experiences of, of providers who, who've gone with those 
gone with those companies, I think, will be even more risk averse than they might have done been previously because of kind of what's happened. So, yeah, I think those were the headlines and the kind of interesting aspect. There was a whole bunch of things around AI, which I think we talked about in a previous episode, which um, injected a bit more interest into this space than sometimes can be the case around product. Um, but yeah, the big headlines are very much a continuation of the same around, you know, um, market market movement. I just wondered if there was anything that uh, piqued your interest in terms of thinking about your context that kind of reflected, or maybe I'm asking you to kind of give out too much before you do your uh, your market analysis. Yeah, I don't know that we're that protective of IP. Morgan, <laughs> you're knee deep in this. Uh, you yes, know, your thoughts. neck deep. I, I like to think, you know, little data sort of hanging there and, and don't make waves. Um, but, you know, it, it is pretty equitably uh, distributed in, in North America, though I, I'm sort of struck in all markets for the most part about how many smaller niche players there are. So there's a very, you know, there's quite a big long tail of, um, LMS or, or VLE providers in a lot of markets. And, you know, sometimes they can, in particular uh, sectors of um, institutions, you know, for example, really small institutions, you get a lot of, of populi. We need to check if that's populi or populi. populi or if, yeah. if anybody's listening that knows, you can uh, send us a note. Yes, and I can always rely usually in the United States on my accent to just say, oh, that's the way we pronounce it where I come from and who the heck is going to check. <laughs> um, but, you know, there are quite a lot of these sort of small and, and they change depending on the particular slice that you take of that data. But yeah, that's sort of one of the, one of the big uh, things coming along. The other thing I was also struck by is the age of the contracts you know, and, and you can't necessarily infer a lot from there, but they, a lot of places have had the same system for a long time now, you know, north of eight years. And I remember once years ago, um, Phil, you did a post about that, you know, it was 8.25, I remember. And that seems to be a, a sort of critical point for changing, but I don't think that's necessarily the case here, you know, because I think it's really focused on the Moodles and, and and those kinds of systems, but but there are a lot of old old systems out there, or systems that places have had for a long time. Yeah, well, typical contracts quite often go in increments of five years. So the eight year key milestone, get an LMS, renew it once at the five year point, but before the ten year point, quite often procurement rules say you can't keep renewing. You're going to, yeah. even if you stick with the same system, you've got to do an evaluation. So eight years is a very natural point where a lot of schools will do an RFP or a tender, depending on uh, how you want to call it. One thing I would add, like we're, t I've always promoted or described some of the, not just long tail entrants, but hopefully new entrants to the market and I have to say, I have a pretty poor track record or, uh, you know, it's another karma issue. So I wrote quite a bit about loud cloud systems and how they were going with a modular LMS that really was pretty, um, it, it did some things that people have been talking about for years, about having almost like a learning management operating system or a reconfigurable LMS. They had a nice design. Grand Canyon University, which is huge, were using them and just a handful, but they're really out of the market. I had also written about ALA, 
um, that they had a really interesting, nice system, very cloud-based, intuitive. They tied it together with a lot of instructional design, but they never really had a business behind what they were doing. I mean, they had some real flaws and you were generous in saying they got acquired by Coventry. Basically, they acquired the IP for nothing or very little. And so that's another one I'd written about Schoology, which is very strong, owned by Power School, very strong in the K-12 market. They tried to enter the higher ed market and they had a very compelling product as well. They were pretty unique in having like a news feed type front end. Uh, and they were also native cloud and had some good designs. But they got in and they got beat up by the RFP process. They they said, we're out of here. We can't do higher ed. Some of these RFPs are too expensive and difficult and we, we can't keep fighting. So we'll stick to K-12. So those are three systems that I had hopes would enter the market and make it more competitive. But in the end, all of them fell away. And um, is there any discussion at all or any examples of providers using things like Microsoft Teams and Google Classroom? Because there's always been, (coughs) excuse me, a little bit of talk around Microsoft Teams here. And there are smaller, there are, I think, maybe two smaller providers, one using Teams, one using Google Classroom, but it's never really got any traction over here. I just wondered if that's something that's been discussed or... It gets discussed. The Microsoft Teams, you might have one or two schools that actually do that. Google Classroom definitely has traction in K-12, huge traction in K-12. And then Morgan, you had said that they get quite a bit of interest in Asia. Yeah, I, I see quite a lot of quite a lot, lot of that, especially in Southeast Asia as well. And there are a couple of providers that have built on Microsoft 365. I know there's one out of um, Scandinavian countries, I'm blanking on the name, another one out of um, Singapore that 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 does that. I I don't know how many times in my life as an analyst I've been lectured about how the fact that I'm I'm uh, overlooking the 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 extent to which Microsoft Teams is going to replace the LMS. Wait, Microsoft Teams or Google Wave because I think I heard the same <laughs> arguments about Google Wave too. Probably well I wasn't an analyst during during um, Google Wave otherwise I'm sure I would have and in particularly I I often get it about well you know University of New South Wales but like it's 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 a guy in the engineering school who's doing a lot of stuff with uh, with teams at New South Wales. The the university as a whole, I believe, was still on Moodle. So so yeah. It's, I'm glad uh, I'm not the only one that's had that had that talk, Morgan, around uh, <laughs> Microsoft Teams. Yes. Snap. Well, the beauty of Microsoft Teams, it's so secure that even its own users have trouble getting in and using it. So it's got that going for it as well. But yeah, it's the same conversation. If you ask me, you know, it's always around the corner. But no, the only real traction of any of the big tech providers, in my mind, is Google Classroom in the K twelve space and in Southeast Asia. Other than that, all the talk about big tech, it just never pans out. And part of it is, and this is interesting. Big tech companies are probably smart enough. They don't want to get into the complexities of grade books and quizzing engines and add drop periods and keeping rosters up to date. The very difficult, uh, complicated work that the modern LMS has to manage. So we're in this world where the smaller providers, the companies we deal with, 
they're the ones tackling the big, tough problems. The big tech providers, they'll say, well, we'll do a learning management system, but we're not going to get pulled into all that complexity. And I think that's part of the reason you don't see it is they're probably wisely stay away from fully solving the LMS problem. Sometime we should have a conversation about sort of the new generation of conferencing tools like the Engage Lees and the Class um, and, and things like that. I had a, a, a reader of, of, of our newsletter um, take it up with me this week. So it'd be interesting because I, I was very down on them initially. I thought, yeah, it's not going to take on. Well, you might have just said our next episode. We'll have to figure that out. Okay. <laughs> But with that in mind, and hopefully that was a positive or at least neutral enough topic to offset uh, some of the news items, the main thing that we did want to talk today is uh, Morgan's going to bring us back down and look at uh, college and university finances and sort of, uh, you know, what what that's looking like and what we should be expecting. So let me turn it over to you, Morgan. Yeah, my, 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 my other name can be Dr. Gloom, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah you know, there have been a bunch of uh, stories in the press on both sides of the Atlantic about, about universities having a rough time financially and facing closure. You know, there were a number of articles towards the end of last year about the number of closures in U.S. higher education. I think it was 14 institutions closed, which is much higher than has been the case for a few years. There was actually a fairly cheerful, um, comparatively cheerful report out of the a British higher ed uh, sector by PricewaterhouseCoopers looking at uh, the financial situation of universities, where they said about 40% of them were facing financial dire straits, but that they were pretty optimistic in the long term where they thought income would uh, rise and, and in the future they foresaw you know, fewer than 15% having a problem. But you know, there is that structural problem of the fact that uh, fees have been stuck at, at the same level for quite a few years now. And, and in real terms, they're worth almost half as much as what they were when they were first set by the you know So universities are looking at a, a tough um, structural deficit thing. But, you know, in general, there's a lot of bad news on the horizon there. Also an interesting piece out of the Chronicle about, again, about Wisconsin, and I'd written about that a little bit as well. But perhaps let's open it up. Um, would you would you agree with my uh, assessment of that PwC report, Neil, or, or am I missing some of the, the British nuance there? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought it was a nice report and, and pretty balanced in that sense, it certainly wasn't akin to um, an article that was in the Daily Telegraph that said the collapse of our universities is the best thing that could have happened to Britain. So it was a, it was a bit more balanced than that particular take. So yeah, and I think it, yeah, it, it provided it did provide balance because you know there's so much negative stories that it, you know it can be easy to kind of be too gloomy about things. There has been income growth. Um, in international students, UK is still a really appealing place to study for international students. We have, um, I think it's not until 2030 when we're, the number of kind of 18-year-olds is predicted to decline. So there's scope for growth there. Um, you know, something that probably wasn't mentioned in the report was, you know, there are 
you know, there have been providers moving into online education, moving into transnational education, you know, in a way that presents problems as well. But it, it's, um, I, I was, I, one of the, one of your quotes, Phil, was ringing my ears when I was thinking about this in terms of, I think you were maybe asked around the pandemic when universities should invest in online education. And you said maybe, I don't know how many years ago it was, five or 10 years ago, decade ago, that was the one. Yeah. So, you know, if we're looking for positives, then, you know, the position that some universities find themselves at least is driving them into areas that perhaps they should have invested in earlier. So it was, uh, yeah, it was, it was, um, it wasn't an overly gloomy report and it provided some, some bright spots and actually some ways in which universities might look to um, ge- generate revenue. I mean, one of the suggestions that stuck out for me and I couldn't find the rationale for this was actually the provision of um, short online courses um, as a potential revenue stream. I, that was interesting for me because I think that's a interesting, interesting idea, um, and one in which it would have been interested to know where that idea came from. But it was a, it was a good one. I mean, you know, it is a really tough situation here at the moment. You know, one of the things I've been doing recently, just to add to my pain, is is looking through some of the annual reports of universities and just seeing, you know the the challenges of things like inflation and looking at the kind of percentage increase in things like energy costs you know is a really interesting aspect of that quite apart from the things that you know are known like the capped fee you know but the most of the reports you know tell a positive story around international growth but you know the risk there is over reliance on international students to cross subsidize um you know, other activities and the risk of over-reliance on, on different markets. So, you know, at least the PWC report provided um, a bit more balance around, um, you know, potential positive things that might happen and potential avenues um, that universities might take to kind of alleviate the situations that they're in at the moment. But it is it is tough times over here at the moment, for sure, for sure. I would definitely agree with the positive spin you have because and we see that in many different areas. It's sort of this is an existential issue. There's a lot of uh, issues that higher ed has rejected even thinking about in the past that now it's like you you have to think about it. And obviously online education is a key part. What is the online? What's the hybrid? How does that fit within the mix? And part of what that's done is it's pushed it up from just being an associate dean with a specific graduate program or continuing education department up into like the provost and president's level. So things have definitely become much more uh, existential in a good way. Like we're willing to look, ask some tough questions and figure this out. The challenge, of course, is higher education institutions are typically not good with decision-making and sticking with it. But at the very least, they're now honestly thinking about these questions. And I do think that's a not a positive spin. I think that is a positive around the change that we're going through. The other thing I was just going to point out is so much of this discussion is ends up being, well, Clayton Christensen talked about, you know, a quarter or half of schools going out of business within a certain number of years. And then everybody saying, see, that's not happening. But then ignore. So you get this back and forth, but ignoring, uh, but it's rising and it's a real issue. And 
just because you could point to one prediction that was off numerically doesn't get rid of the issue. And that part is uh, tiring in the media and online discussion. It's not as you're not a Clayton Christensen, you know, advocate in terms of what that prediction was. No, but we got to deal with the subject. And I wish there was more honest dealing with what you're bringing up, Morgan, about not just closures, closers, mergers, schools that are not viable on their own with their current model. I think that's interesting just in terms of like thinking about the causes and thinking about the what lies behind predictions, because, you know, there's there was some discussion around, you know, what happens if a UK university kind of go essentially goes under or goes out of business. Um, and, you know, I think some of the kind of guidance was around this was uh, the fact that, you know, competition is good. And if a university, you know, does go under, it's, you know, it's to be expected in a kind of competitive market environment. But that works on the assumption that maybe the market is functioning well and there's not these kind of geo political macroeconomic things like inflation and wars and all that kind of thing that are influencing um, those things as well as ways in which maybe universities need to change. So there's also kind of an interesting argument around those predictions and what's happening and the causes that kind of, you know, add, add some nuance to, to all of that. I don't have a follow on from that. What I was going to say is, you know, I always think of that, of that Hemingway quote about how I think it's Hemingway. How do you go? How do you go bankrupt slowly then all at once? And I think of that in terms of universities, you know, and I think both individual institutions plus the sector as a whole, you know, I think we've the slow drip of things is, um, is important. I wouldn't mind adding something. I don't know if I would call it competition, but I think we need to, differentiate the conversation. It's not like, take the Wisconsin two-year colleges that you were talking about, Morgan. The market in this case truly is saying by enrollment that something's changed in what students are looking for, what students are available, and what they're looking for. There's something structural that really has to be dealt with. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the challenge is how do we take the same schools as they're currently organized and keep them alive? I think there needs to be a real hard look of, well, then what change does the sector need to do? And, you know, so I guess you could call that competition, but there are elements in the U.S., particularly around two-year public schools, where to me, I think it's undeniable that the market is sending a very strong message and there needs to be a change, not how do we keep these community colleges alive, but a change of what is actually needed and what do we need to move to or what are the alternative approaches? I think I think that's true, Phil, but I think it also you know, it exists at that level of the institution, you know, um, the market sending a message, how do we change, but also even within institutions, you know, I think the market sends a message about certain disciplines and there's just such a, uh, people in higher ed hate to see something going away, you know, but things go away all the time, you know, we don't teach phrenology anymore, you know, and, 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 and we shouldn't. <laughs> and, and not that, not that, something is equivalent, but but disciplines change and we need to be flexible about that. Otherwise, it's just holding on for the sake of that. 
Wow, you sound like you're backing up the West Virginia uh, trans transition right now. I think it's. I think the problem is it's done like West Virginia. You know, it's done in a clumsy, sort of not very thoughtful way, and and or or it's and it's done too late. I don't know what the answer is, but but there there does need to be a um, a, a a better responsiveness. And I, I briefly looked at a paper out of one of the Federal Reserves last night, actually, which showed that community colleges are being somewhat uh, responsive to labor needs. And I had a great interview a couple of weeks ago with a guy who actually runs a high school in Passaic County, New Jersey, where they've been doing um, work-based degrees in combo with the community college next door. Um, And and it started with um, additive manufacturing, and now it's gone into bio... Uh, biomedical engineering as well. So I think there are little elements of this, but on the whole, it's it's like change is bad and we need to resist it. Or survive despite change as opposed to we're going to change what we actually provide and how we do it as a way to react to it. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that's, I think that's where, I don't know, looking for an upside of if, if you really feel like you've hit rock, bo- rock bottom, then, you know, you have to do something about it. You have to change. You're compelled to change in a way that you might not do when the sun's shining. And so, you know, there's different ways in which you can go about that. But I think, you know, there is inevitably ways in which, you know, universities can improve what they do, better cater for different needs and, you know, getting to a place that some of them find themselves in, you know, maybe just the kind of um, impetus that they need to kind of get buy-in as well as to kind of make that change. So, you know, that's another, yeah, another attempt to put more of a positive positive spin on, on what's happening. Well, I think one of the opportunities, go keep coming back to the two-year colleges, the community colleges in the U.S. in particular, and one of our clients, I can't go into too many details, but the Colorado Community College System, they're, ha- they're being forced to change how they provide online learning in a statewide fashion. They're moving to a course-sharing consortium approach. But part of the opportunity is, and so often you hear, well, what about Southern New Hampshire? How do we compete with them? And I think the answer on the competitive level is you don't compete with them. They're very few national brands and you can't go head to head with Southern New Hampshire, but you can provide it differently. And one of the huge opportunities is to go back to the roots. We're a community college. We're moving into online education aggressively, but we're a community college. So it's like, hey, you can have the best of both worlds, online education with the school that's right down the road with additional resources. And they know you, they know the community, they know the local workforce. So it's like online education, but from the community. That type of change in mindset, I think, is a positive. And I do see it in other areas. It's not just in Colorado. But um, yeah, I think there's a lot of opportunities to make positive longer term changes, um, even in that space. But I think it requires, as you say, a different kind of thinking and not a reactive kind of thinking in terms of, oh, how do we respond to um, to, uh, to, uh, to Southern New Hampshire? But thinking, what are we, where are we, what are we about and, and, and what are we good at? And what, do we, what does the community need? Yeah, and that kind of reactive response is kind of what I was thinking about 
a little bit in the UK because it feels like, you know, although I've kind of talked positively about more universities making a move to online education, there's a sense in which everyone's in a similar boat and they're all basically, you know, veering into different pots of um, the market that they might not have been in otherwise. And therefore there's kind of, you know, that kind of um, reduces the kind of scope scope a little bit so like I I think to that point it'd be really interesting to see you know to Phil's point those innovations and thinking beyond going into going down established roads that that a provider might not have gone down before as a solution but instead thinking about different ways you know I mentioned the the report I talked around online short courses as a potential avenue but I think they also mentioned around kind of enterprise and the corporate side of things. So exploring kind of different avenues and different ways out and different ways of, of, of delivering education and, and offering education, you know, I think could be a really interesting um, result of what's happening. And it's often those kind of environments where you're really constrained, where some of the best ideas come out. So um, I, I hope that you know, not everyone puts their eggs in the basket of, you know, an a- an area like transnational education or online education that they might not have been doing previously, but considers, you know, a few different ways that have some viability um, uh, that they, they, they can kind of go down. Yeah. Well, I think in so many cases, particularly around online education, part of what you're, you've got to balance economies of scale. If you look at an online education in particular, it's undeniable you have economies of scale. Too small of an online program is extremely difficult to run at break even or make it, you know, self-sustaining. That's part of the reason schools like Southern New Hampshire, once you get to a certain size, you have a lot of economies of scales in digital marketing, you know, buying AdWords, sharing students between programs, et cetera. So there's that sort of pushes you to larger. But what we're all talking about, certainly in the UK and the US is, and in particular with two-year colleges, there's lower enrollments. But there's, at the same time, there's a need for online education because of working adults changing student environments. So how do you find that balance? And, you know, I mentioned the Colorado case. They're not changing the institutions but they're pursuing a strategy which is saying by working together we can achieve some greater economies of scale but still be responsive to the students in our local area other places like i guess a question i would have you keep hearing about college mergers but too often to me the mergers are all about saving administrative cost and you know just cost cutting and running a little bit more efficient and not really saying hey, by doing this merger, can we have a better economy of scale that will enable online or hybrid programs in a way that they haven't done? But Morgan, are you seeing any positive examples of mergers that deal with that in a in an opportunity way as opposed to just cutting administrative costs? I'm tempted to say uh, the Georgia State, Georgia Gwinnett College merger. I think there were some good things that came out of that. But, you know, I wonder if that's another opportunity for, for a, a discussion for us down the road, perhaps, because there have been mergers in the UK as well. 
um, you know, maybe we can actually delve into that a bit. I can't off the top of my head say what the the positive was, but I think certainly speaking to some of the folks involved in Georgia, they went into it in a really um, positive sort of way about how can we come out of this better, all of us, and not just cheaper and more efficient. Yeah. That's true. Well, at the same time, and we talked about Wisconsin and the enrollments are down, particularly at the two-year colleges, but Maine, the two-year colleges and news report coming out today, although the data has been out there, but it's getting written about more, Maine's community college system is increasing enrollment. And nominally, they're crediting the free college, you know, as statewide initiative around free community college for the growth in enrollment. Um, I personally have been skeptical about the free community college movement because quite often it ignores the impact on the four-year schools. And um, Alex Usher wrote about, and I did another post on the same topic, you tend to get an initial bump in enrollment from free community college, but then longer term, it goes down. So you haven't really structurally addressed a problem. But having said that, Maine is doing something as a state, and they're seeing some positive results. So it's not just mergers, closures, straight going online. That's another, at least, arrow, you know, that you can pull out and try is free community college. Yeah, and I I can only point to very small, almost kind of minuscule examples of partnerships that have kind of offered a benefit, but nothing on the scale that you're talking about. But it is something that gets talked about a lot, um, but it never seems to come to fruition. And a lot of people are, are kind of, I guess they kind of attribute that to, you know, UK higher education becoming a bit more marketized and competitive and therefore reducing the chances of providers working together. But, you know, to, to the point I made earlier, if a, if any situation is going to compel the bringing of universities together, then it's, it's, it's probably now. So, you know, that's one to watch uh, as the kind of year, year goes on for, for sure. I, and I keep going back to something that you said at the beginning, Neil. In my head, I, I keep going back to it. You, 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 you quoted the Daily Telegraph of say, as saying that perhaps the the higher ed sector collapsing would be the best thing. And and you know, to sort of paraphrase Winston Churchill, you know, like the higher ed sector is the worst possible arrangement that you could have for society, except for all the others. You know, when it comes to education, <laughs> you know, it it. it it, it's got its issues, but it's also highly effective as well, just given given the scale of what they're trying to do. So I think, you know, trying to find these solutions is a useful thing and, and something we must do because we all actually care about the space. That's yeah. why we're there. One, one thing I would add to it is sort of at the technology and the vendor side is I've talked to a lot of vendors lately, and one of the key points I've been emphasizing, and it's sort of interesting, the point of view from the vendors, is these issues that we're talking about, the finances, the enrollment, the underlying cost increases due to inflation that are not fully understood how much they're impacting schools. And we've talked about here about online education, but I think it has a broader impact. It's driving general ed tech usage, like what colleges and universities are willing to spend on data 
So for example, in data and analytics, can't just rely on a magic black box algorithm, like a, like a Civitas type of approach. They need to have a much more pragmatic, this is serious stuff. We're dealing with existential issues. I got to buy something that I understand and can make it work in the, and get some benefit in the short term. And so these macro higher ed issues are driving not just online education, but they're driving, well, we talked about LMS and VLE space early on. I think it's driving the when schools make a change and what the purpose is. I think it's driving whether or not to, how deep to get into data and analytics as a strategy. But it's crucial, I think, to understand these broader issues because it's changing a lot of the tech landscape well beyond online education. Yeah, and the te- I mean, the tech landscape, maybe maybe not exclusively ed tech, is, you know, is, is also kind of part of the thing that universities need to invest in here as well, for sure. So, you know, that's that, that's a tension around the kind of finance side of things. And I guess how much that is conceived as being really important to competitiveness is, is interesting. You know, I'm chatting to a provider who, you know, uh, has a has a really interesting system that you know uh, can be used alongside their kind of OPM offering that kind of just streamlines a whole bunch of things and sort of circumvents um, some of the university ways of doing things that that enables them to kind of stand up programs more quickly and offer a kind of more modern, streamlined kind of experience for for customers. And so, it's in, it, it, I think you know it'd be interesting to see how much. Um, you know, what's going on at the moment does drive uh, investment in systems, even in a kind of difficult, difficult time and how much it might um, influence kind of the changes that, that that are made. But I kind of definitely see a bit more of uh, a more, more of that side of things. And I think that's part of the evolution of, of, uh, of what's happening. Well, great. Well, hopefully, uh, I mean, we were talking about this year. Uh, there's a lot of challenges. I mean, this is shaping up. The more that I look at things, it could be as dramatic as 2023 in terms of the threats, the changes facing higher education in many countries. We're all trying to find the positive, but we need to be very you know, hard-headed as far as understanding this is what's happening and here's the next steps to deal with it. I think this has been a great discussion looking at specific university finances and what they do about it. And uh, looks like, uh, why don't we set up the discussion that you had mentioned about, let's look at the virtual collaboration platforms moving forward, the classes, the engagements, the usage of Zoom. I think that'd be interesting to explore that more in a tech version, but it's affecting so many schools. So we will deal with that on the next episode, unless some huge news story comes out between now and then. But thanks a lot, and we look forward to uh, interacting with you guys again in the future.